Hello, folks. Um, this is Alan Taylor, director of Thor The Dark World, and I'm here with Kramer Morgenthau, our brilliant DP. Uh, Hello, this is Kramer. Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Feige, producer of Thor The Dark World, president of Marvel Studios. What you're looking at here is our brand new logo. This was the first film in Marvel Studios history that only has the Marvel Studios logo on it, so we wanted to keep the traditional flip logo, as we call it, but update it a little bit and give it a new fanfare by Brian Tyler. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Hiddleston, and I play Loki in the Marvel movies. We are starting this film as we started the first film with a prologue narrated by Odin himself, introducing Chris Eccleston here as Malekith. The plan was not always to have a prologue. We had uh, written a script and in fact shot a film that did not include a prologue. And we tested that film and shared it with audiences. And while they enjoyed much of it, they wanted to know more about Malekith. And there were some audience members that went, well, hang on, Thor movies start with, start with a prologue. And I thought, what do you mean Thor movies? We've only made one. Um, but I liked that that structure had, uh, had landed with people and they had said, well, no, of course, a Thor movie starts with a prologue. So midway through post-production, we mounted this spectacularly large prologue uh, which was uh, entirely completed and accomplished by Tim Miller and his folks at Blur. And this is an entirely computer-generated prologue, with the exception of uh, Adwale and Chris Eccleston. And the actor who plays Bor, Odin's father. Right, right. We had a, like, a color palette for all the, the major forces. Uh, the elves wound up being um, black, obviously, for being dark elves, with a kind of silvery mother-of-pearl finish to their weaponry and their armor and their masks. And then their key technology color was red, which we stuck with throughout. You know, we thought that this would... The battle that the Ainanyar, the warriors of Asgard, do in this sequence, and the dark elves themselves do, set up not only the evil that uh, that uh, they do, but also, frankly, their action ability and their, and their fighting ability. So that when we see them later, um, you know, we, we landed on this design, which was scary, which was frightening, but in its simplicity, the big round eyes, the non-moving mouth. Mm. Um, but we wanted to make sure they also knew they could kick all sorts of ass, which is why we... Uh, one of the many reasons we added this opening. It's not easy being the bad guy. Huh. <laughs> Those are the, the ships. The elves have two ships in our film, and we, you know, like all the elven technology, it was really fun to create, really fun to envision. Um, a lot of collaboration with Charlie Wood, our designer, who turned out to be one of the real strong elements of making this movie. This one we took to calling the Ark, the large one, and the smaller ones you see later we were calling the Harrow ships, but uh, designed by Charlie and his team to be threatening. The, uh, the character of Bor, you will notice his signature helmet, which is, uh, of course, taken from the comics, and you will see a little bit later in the movie um, when we see a statue of Bor. Hmm. Here's a detail. This is Tony Curran playing Bor, who is the father of Odin, who is the father of Thor. And he's wearing an entirely CGI helmet because we hadn't designed his helmet at the time that we shot him. So it's part of the wonder of cinema um, that uh, we could put that helmet on long after we shot the actor. There's our title, which again was sort of came up halfway through uh, making the film as we started to realize that we were more and more focused on darkening the story for Thor. Chained. Public enemy number one. 
I always thought it was important um, to have this scene because Loki and Odin haven't seen each other and Frigga, as you just see, played by the beautiful Rene Russo. Um, these three people haven't seen each other since the end of the first Thor film. And um, Odin and Loki uh, have many, many things to talk about. The events of the Avengers, the battle for New York, his attempted tyranny and takeover of an entire planet. Father and son. This was another scene that was not in early drafts of the script, nor was it in uh, uh, the principal photography uh, section of our, of our production. Tom, as he said, had mentioned this, uh, sort of wanting to see this scene years ago, really. Mm, yeah. I had forgotten about it. We thought it might be important to meet, meet Loki for the first time in the dungeon as we end up meeting him later. Uh, but our executive producer, Craig Kyle, and our co-writer, Chris Yost, had written a tie-in comic. Mm. You know, at Marvel, we like to have, uh, to have tie-in comics that relate somewhat to the movies, and it was a prequel uh, comic that, uh, that sort of told uh, the non-Avengers portions of the storyline that occurs between Thor and Thor the Dark World. And a version of this scene was included, and that was published only a few months ago from, from this point when we were recording. And I looked at it and I went, Mike, th- we have to have this in the movie. We mm. have to have this in the movie. And we contacted Tom and he goes, don't you remember I told you this years ago? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and thankfully he was available and we came in and, uh, uh, with Sir Anthony Hopkins and shot it. And now, of course, I can't imagine opening this movie any other way. It was amazing to work with, um, with Tony again. He's um, one of the greatest actors working today and uh, a formidable presence. And what I love about the scene is that it's as emotional and um, and sort of um, and and wrought as as it was in the first Thor film, but Loki's response is very very different. He's not as, he's not as vulnerable as he used to be. He will be king. Which will take us to our first real battle scene, which I'm really proud of. Uh, this is one of the first things we shot. Actually, this is uh, this was. I remember thinking at the time this was sort of. Kramer and me showing what this movie was going to look like, kind of, because it was dirtier and um, denser, and and uh, this was the kind of way we wanted to portray violence, and this is the way we wanted to show battle, and I love Thor's entrance into the movie here. And what I have to say, and all credit to Alan Taylor, is the best intro of any hero in any of our films. There he is, the mighty Chris Hemsworth, my brother from another mother. This very shot when Chris was leaping through the air. Uh, I was not in uh, England, we were filming this scene, and I got an email that day from Chris with a still frame from the uh, playback monitor of that moment, just saying, poster idea, question mark. (laughs) And if people remember when they were driving around uh, before this film opened, they saw perhaps billboards uh, throughout their town with an image very, very similar to that. We we introduced all of our Warriors Three who were um, in the first film, but here we get a chance to see them being Real warriors, uh, Volstagg, Hogan, and Fandral, and of course Lady Sif. Uh, the, the the reason for the this particular take on this village is that we decided this was Hogan's homeworld, and so it's a culture that he might have come from. You know, the comics of Thor obviously take place on many different worlds, all of the nine worlds. And one of the things we talked about when we started developing this film was wanting to see more of them. And uh, Vanaheim, of course, is uh, is what this world is, and seeing the rock monster. Korg, who, who uh, uh, fans may know that this is, uh, th- this character is also known as the Stone Man from Saturn. 
Mm. The Stone Men from Saturn, of course, was the very first uh, bad guys that Thor fought in his very first issue. They didn't quite look exactly like that, but that was our nod to his very first appearance. Hello? I accept your surrender. I love that moment. I think um, Chris has, a, has an amazing um, charm as Thor. And I think it's such, it's, it's, an, it's a part of, his, of what I've always admired about his performance, is he's able to, to bring the thunder, um, no pun intended. He's able to, um, he has an innate nobility and a presence, but he's also incredibly charming. I think also a lot of uh, kudos to the uh, special effects team. There was all that atmosphere in the air and those explosions and... Yeah, those are all real effects, which is always, for me, more fun to work with. Um, and in a kind of nerdy way, it was fun to have them come in every day and show me something new they could blow up and a different combination of chemicals that would lead to a different balance between flame and smoke. In our story time, we, we have always figured that Thor has spent about a year going from planet to planet with his Warriors 3 and Sif, cleaning up the fires that have, uh, that have burned th across the universe, not only in light of what Loki had done on Earth in Avengers, but also the fact that Thor had to destroy the Bifrost Bridge at the end of his first movie, and the Asgardians couldn't, uh, couldn't police the galaxy as they, uh, as they traditionally did. And it's a little quiet moment as we leave Hogan for the rest of the movie here with his family. And right about now is as good a moment as any to talk about our composer on this film, Brian Tyler. Brian did amazing work for us on Iron Man 3. It was the first time we worked with him. And, uh, and we were very happy with what he did for us, gave Iron Man a, a, a triumphant theme. And we asked if he'd be interested in coming on to this film. And uh, he, he frankly geeked out over it uh, immensely and worked very, very hard delivering one of the best scores that we've ever had at Marvel Studios. I want to give a public salute to Jake Morrison, um, uh, our leading visual effects artist, and I think um, he makes uh, Asgard look absolutely extraordinary. Bo Welch had designed Asgard Force on the first Thor film, and uh, when we knew we had the opportunity to make another one, we wanted to build off of that, and we wanted to make it seem a little more lived in. You see here they're down in the lower parts of the city, in the training grounds, where there's more stone, some wood structures, not just the gold gleaming, which of course is there as well. And Charlie Wood, our production designer on this film, uh, did a tremendous job building uh, not only all those sets of Asgard, but designing the worlds as you will see it uh, uh, in this film. This is a new father-son dynamic between Odin and Thor, too. You see, I think, um, that Thor is a more mature prince than he once was. And, um, and his relationship with his own father has become more complicated. His father is older, and they're, that they're much more evenly matched in this film, I think. Worth noting, Thor doesn't have a shirt on here. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard some audience members speculate that this was, that he's being enhanced with visual effects, but nope, this is just Chris Hemsworth on an average day. It was pointed out to us when, uh, when we shot a version of this movie that didn't include that moment. Really? And, uh, and uh, there was an outcry amongst a certain segment of the population to perhaps include that moment. <laughs> and we put it there hoping that it would would uh, at least somewhat fit into the storyline of a character who's, uh, who's lamenting his current uh, circumstance. And he needed to wash his hands, at the very least. Another! 
this Thor is um, introverted, solitary, reflective. There was a time when you would celebrate for weeks. This is a really beautiful moment from Jamie Alexander, I think. She's wonderful in this scene. The idea that she'd always developed from, from, from the very first film, that, um, that somewhere in, in Sif's heart was a very deep affection for Thor, and it was uh, a spark that he hadn't yet recognized. And she plays this particularly kind of um, delicate strain very, very, very well. I was glad that she got, you know, there's, there's not enough time to service all, all the characters that you love, but she got, at least got a couple of strong moments in this movie too, um, in terms of action, but also in terms of the emotional thread between her and Thor that runs through the comics as well. And on that look, we cut to London, to Earth for the first time. To the woman that he misses, and Chris O'Dowd. This is a small but important role in the film of Richard on the blind date with Jane, and uh, we were very, very excited that, uh, that Chris agreed to, uh, to come do this cameo for us. And he's just one of these actors who, you know, just exudes sort of a real earthy charm, so you sort of like him immediately, which is really important when you only have a limited amount of time to sort of establish a character. So he's a delight, and the two of them got along really well. It was, very, they were, it was sort of one of those days people were laughing all day long. I think, um, you know, Kevin, the films that you make, the films that Marvel have made, always have a sense of humor. And, and you have these huge characters who exist in their own universes. And of course, superhero films are, um, they are spectacular and, and they're full of tension and, and heroics. But the thing that distinguishes these films, I think, is that they are funny. And, um, and the introduction of Chris O'Dowd here, and of course, the great Kat Dennings, who is about as fun to be around and as fun on set as she seems to be from, you know, on screen. She's one of these people that seems to enjoy the whole process, and she's really funny. I think it's one of the very unusual things about the Thor films, and one of the things that we love about it is that, yes, we've had a scene that just saw took place 5,000 years ago between Dark Elves and uh, Asgardian armies. Then we saw a prince being led in chains to the royal dungeons. Mm. And a, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a hero um, uh, battling marauders on a foreign planet. And now we're in a blind date scene on Earth. I, I love that counterbalance, which, of course, will end up intersecting in the finale. Eric referring to Eric Selvig, Stellan Sarsgaard, who appeared in the first Thor and Avengers, and in Avengers, of course, Loki, took over his mind, and he's now banana balls. <laughs> I think Natalie's character uh, brings, I think, something fresh to a, a female heroine in the in the picture, and she's an intelligent scientist. And uh, you well, know. she's she's she advances the action. She's actually really integrated into the action. But the funny thing about her, I remember meeting her for the first time and thinking, okay, Academy Award winning actress. She must be very serious. She does beautiful serious movies. And I realized that what she really wanted to know was that she was going to be funny as well this time because I think, and it sort of goes to what you're saying, that if you, the, the role of female characters is not just to give them strong characters and to involve them in the action, but you have to involve them in all the best parts of the movie. And humor is, a big, is one of the best parts of the movie, so they aren't fully um, you know, participating as characters unless they're also part of that. So 
I think and the I humor think is spread around. The first day she came to work and we were, you know, oh, here's this serious actress. And we, she had to do this scene where it was like literally like rolling in the mud. <laughs> and she was a total trooper, yeah, just yeah. totally into it. I'm here at Stonehenge for what has been an This was the very first scene that we shot for the film. And it's always a it's always fun when your very first scene in a movie can involve a naked Stellan Sarsgaard running around a historic landmark. <laughs> Stellan is such an extraordinary actor. He's he's um made so many films with so many different people. He is such an incredible an easy gift, and I love how game he is in these films. He he just has no um, no vanity at all. He's um, puts a hundred percent into everything. He's so committed and and such an easy guy to get along with. This is a wonderful location. I I love these sort of abandoned industrial stuff. There's a little thing that not many people will notice, but uh, we. Um, the kids have been playing in this zone, messing with gravity effects because they're the first ones to discover that gravity is acting a little weird. So they've built themselves a little kind of stone hinge with the container boxes, which is what humans tend to do when gravity goes down. You pick up big things and stack them like, like children would do. So that's a little inside reference to Stonehenge. Later on, Selvig says that uh, 5,000 years ago, all the great constructions, including Stonehenge, um, but elsewhere, the pyramids, all of which tended to happen around the same time, historically, uh, happened because gravity was acting weird during the last convergence. So that's sort of an inside reference for those who notice the details. Speaking of great constructions, this was the EMI record factory. That's right. Which is sort of homage piece of, piece of history. To, yeah. Where they used to press all the vinyl. Always love this image, love this interior, love this location, love what Kramer did with the, how it's lit. Uh, love this actor. Um, to me, this tone of wonder of seeing things through a kid's eyes and having magical things happen was a, one of the pleasant tones in the movie. That is a real uh, cement truck turning around there. There was a colossal rig behind it uh, doing it, which we've taken out. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it's relatively simple. A bottle dropping in and out of, of worlds. And it introduces the idea of the convergence, that every thousand years, every so many thousand years, the the realms that make up the universe, the nine realms, um, come into alignment, and the walls between worlds become more porous and and connected. That's, that's incredible. These kids, um, none of them had performed before on film. Uh, they were all cast be partly because they were wonderful actors, but also because they could speak Farsi. Because in the original uh, version of their material, we see them hanging out earlier in the film and they're um, speaking their language. I want to try and capture that feeling of a kind of immigrants London, uh, cosmopolitan London, which is very much what you see and feel when you go there today. I haven't seen readings like this since, since New Mexico. Don't touch anything. Okay, so she's off and chasing because she realizes that uh, this is all reminding her of when she last discovered Thor, and so she's getting excited about maybe this is going to lead back to Thor. 
There's a gag coming up, which we always play so well. Which is, we were screening the film early on, the fact that people laughed at this joke coming up made us think, okay, here we go with the keys. The fact that they laughed at that joke, they understood, okay, sometimes mm -hmm. things come back, sometimes they don't, these are going to other worlds. Yeah. Uh, and we knew that, that some of these crazy concepts were actually landing with, uh, with audiences. And what's great is Darcy's line about the shoes ends up playing back much later in the film as a joke, mm. as we will see. Also worth mentioning Jonathan Howard, who plays Ian, um, who is uh, Darcy's intern, and is often referred to simply as intern. This is uh, Jonathan's very first professional job. Uh, incredible. It, I thought it was his first film. It was his first job. His first job. He just left drama school. He's really, really good and very funny. And now we're about to see something we saw in the prologue, the plinth with the ether inside it. And the ether in the prologue already established as a kind of nuclear weapon um, of the Dark Elves, a, a, a weapon which has the ability to disintegrate matter and, and, and turn it into antimatter, darkness, anti-life. Very, very dangerous indeed. This was our little horror movie moments in the uh, in this ch ether chamber, as we called it. And you hear the sound design, sort of monstrous roars and cries to give a tiny bit of that horror movie vibe. And endangering Jane, and making it very important that Thor find her. That might be my favorite transition in the whole movie. Mm to go from Earth to this strange occurrence with Jane to a giant spaceship in an asteroid field. This is one of the favorite things about watching, watching these movies for me is, is when, when you're making them as an actor, it's, a one, it's amazing when, when someone like Charlie Wood can build you a physical set because that gives you a context. It gives you something to respond to. But so often um, we are responding to um, a green screen was surrounded by a, a cyclorama of of, um, of green or blue screen, and and acting is becomes an act of imagination. You're having to imagine the spaceship, imagine the um, the things around you that, of course, don't exist in our physical world. And the excitement of watching these films is is suddenly when you see the work of the visual effects artists and and um, the contribution of Brian Tyler's score and the grade. It's, to see a shot like that is it's um, it's so gratifying because um, it's better and more beautiful than you could possibly have imagined. Uh, this was one of the things that we changed the least from the first film. It was considered very successful the first time around the um, the observatory that Idris Elba's character Heimdall hangs out in, um, and it was one of the few times where getting gold and shiny seemed you know like the right thing to do. We loved Idris and and his character Heimdall wanted him to have. A little bit more to do in this film. And uh, as you will see, he does get some more to do. The observatory, newly built. We don't spell that out in the movie, but this is a newly constructed Bifrost after, uh, after the last one was destroyed. And people playing along at home will notice it's a little different. That 
much larger open iris there. The gears, internal gears, twisting and turning as the entire thing's lower. And then when we do Heimdall's vision, we, this is sort of how you do it. You go close to his eye and try and get a sense of what he's seeing rather than portraying the actual point of view. Heimdall's uniform uh, was adapted for our film. A bit more texture, a bit more sense of history. How is she? She's quite clever, your I remember making the first film with Kenneth Branagh. Um, they, we, this was a real physical set, and um, the last time I saw the observatory, Chris and I were um, kicking ten bells out of each other uh, at the, in the fight at the end of Thor. These shots were done with Natalie against green screen with a phantom camera, which is a super high speed. How many frames do you think you were shooting? Per 2,000. Wow, 2,000 frames a second with wind machine and suspended from wires. And then, of course, all the ether wrapped around her by our visual effects people. These ether visions were an idea that our editor, Dan Liebenthal, had, which really was effective in uh, letting the audience know that, that something bad was happening to Jane, that something very strange was, was occurring. And we replay those a handful of times over the course of the movie. But there's a detail. Those are English police cars. And... Um, that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but sometimes you see a uh, film set in England and then they have American police cars. So I just love the attention to detail. It makes me very proud as a, as a Brit. The, uh, the sequence progresses, as we're about to see, with Thor arriving and uh, the ether lashing out of Jane. And the, in the script, the London police officers uh, all pulled guns mm. and sort of said, stand back, you're in trouble. And it was like that in the script for a long time, and we just sort of took that for granted. And the day uh, before we started filming it, or maybe a few, few weeks before as we were prepping the sequence, all of the London crew said, hold on a minute. Mm. London police do not have guns. True. Uh, which is why you'll see them. What do they have? Do they, they have staffs? They have uh, tasers, maybe? They, yeah, they have. Well, they have um, a, a batons, I think, still. Um, but we're very... Um, you know, this, this country is not... It, we, you know, there's a very strict gun laws here. It's a different kind of thing. So you'll see the police officer calls in for an armed response unit That's right. instead of pulling guns. So even more authentic. And the reunion, of course, between Jane and Thor that we spent a long time thinking about after, uh, after it had been two years, and uh, we wanted to subvert expectations. And actually, Natalie uh, had the idea that they don't just run across uh, a romantic beach and, and, and embrace, that uh, she's got a beef and, uh, and slaps him twice. She's got a thing about slapping that Jane Foster. Uh, uh, you experienced that. Was that a slap or a punch? It was, a, it was kind of a right hook. In the right, end. that's what I yeah. thought. Chris was telling me about this scene. Um, at first, um, Natalie wasn't actually going to hit him. And um, <laughs> they did it a couple of times. And right. It wasn't really working. And the first couple of times, you know, she was worried about, about, about hurting him. Then, like, 30 takes later, she was really packing a punch. Is that you? I think there's something great about this romantic interlude in this industrial background. Very classic Darcy moment here. How's space? Space is fine. Excuse me. Are you Jane Foster? Yes. You know this man? He's my intern. Okay, we're about to see the ether do what it does, uh, which required lots of stuntmen on wires. 
on the day. And blowing out glass simultaneously in the cars and and then laying in the visual effects later. And interactive lightning effects and uh, the Bifrost as well, uh, which is about to happen. A massive tower of light of uh, uh, IntelliBeams above them that creates this hot source and then um, of course visual effects takes it to the next dimension. And now for the first time we get to see a human character take a journey on the Bifrost. And Jane Foster being an astrophysicist loves it. I love seeing Natalie thrilled to see, you know, Jane, I mean, thrilled to see the thing she's been studying all her life as a kind of scientific phenomenon. Now she's experiencing it. This is Iceland. 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 We loved being here. This is a volcanic uh, valley, volcanic rock. Everything there was real. It was one of my favorite shots, that, uh, that wide shot. It's really a, a magical location that makes you feel like you're even transformed to another planet. Another planet, another time. There's something elemental, but Iceland, I still haven't quite figured out why it's so powerful. But I've, Kramer and I shot there for Game of Thrones. I mean, Game of Thrones shot there. Um, but we always use the uh, the winter footage, or the winter uh, locations, like on the glaciers. This is the first time that uh, we got to shoot the um, black volcanic fields of the sort of late summer. This is not of Earth. What is it? Do not know. But sure this is um, Asgardian technology, so again, it's kind of the golden color that distinguishes Asgardian technology from Elven, picking up on the idea of Asgard being the golden city. And from a lighting perspective, this interesting scene where you've got ultra high tech with ultra low tech fire and uh, sources in the background and high-tech um, sort of operating table and yeah again it's it's everybody all the departments pulling together trying to make it coherent when you've basically got yeah, a scientific medical facility but in a fantastical medieval realm so I think Wendy Partridge did a great job on the uniforms of air um, and the other sort of doctors it feels within the vocabulary of Asgard but it still feels like a medical uniform of some kind um, and then the glowing table uh, something that we worked up together with Charlie Wood so you have that kind of cold, scientific light. I love the reversal here too, that in Kenneth Branagh's Thor, um, Chris Hemsworth was the fish out of water, and now Jane Foster's the fish out of water. What you're seeing here is one of the main reasons we wanted to have Jane Foster go to Asgard so that Natalie Portman and Anthony Hopkins could share the screen together, which of course they couldn't at all in the first film. Come with me. There are relics that predate the universe itself. Now we see the Hall of Science for the first time. A replica of Yggdrasil, the world tree, all the nine realms represented there. 
Odin just said something, and he's about to say something, which is uh, very important for Marvel fans and for people interested in Marvel mythology uh, about relics that predate the universe. And you'll hear him in a minute say that most of those relics come in the shape of stones, uh, but that the ether itself is fluid. Uh, and we later reveal in this movie that, uh, that these, are, uh, these are very well-known objects from the comics, which in the comics are called Infinity Gems. We called Infinity Stones. Um, I love the imagery that we created for the book. I like the idea that Odin is telling a story that's so old that he goes back to not some hologram somewhere or some scientific rendering, but to something that looks like an illuminated manuscript. And they did a brilliant job of capturing the aesthetic of an illuminated manuscript, but with the imagery that we created of the Dark Elves. Um, it's one of my favorite props in the movie. Is though, you know, this ancient man, this ancient god, Odin, is telling us a story that's so old that he has to go back to the dustiest wing of his library. And again, I liked Thor's line saying, we used to hear these stories as children. It's worth saying it is an amazing thing, and we've talked about it. Chris and Natalie and myself is, is having the chance to work with Anthony Hopkins. He's an extraordinary actor. And um, it's, it's just watching him here with an eye patch on, he's able to convey so much meaning and history um, with so little. And it's, a, it's, a, it's been a privilege to work with him. Chris Eccleston's an actor I've respected um, since long before I decided to become an actor. And uh, I think it's worth saying, you know, having, having been a villain in these films, there is a, a responsibility about uh, when you're a villain. It is um, the, the stakes of a film, the drama of a film comes from your need. And, and, um, and Chris Eccleston owns that responsibility um, brilliantly, I think. What I love about both Chris and Adwali in the scene is that they're not twisting their mustaches. They, there's real pain behind those elvish eyes. You know, their universe has been ravaged by mm. the creation of our universe, and they want to undo it, and they want to get their world back. They want vengeance. I love that that comes across. Now, paying attention, we see this is Algrim sneaking in in that disguised in that helmet. If they were beneath you, my rotund friend, they'd all be dead. The Warriors Three bringing back the prisoners from Vanaheim, taking them down into the dungeons of Asgard, where we will meet somebody else in the dungeons. <laughs> One of my favorite sets um, is the prison. This is all practical. Uh, my beautiful plaster work by Charlie. Um, I, the case where we were trying very overtly to show the ancient up against the futuristic, so we went for these very, very clean interiors against this ancient, ancient material. This is the first scene um, I shot on this film with Rene Rousseau. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing um, scene, I think, and, um, and very beautifully written because it has so many references back to, to the first film and, and so many subtleties and complications. You know, Loki found out that he was not related to Thor, not related to Odin, not related to Frigga. He was adopted, um, left to die on, on the frozen wastes of Jotunheim and taken in to the family. And he's furious with Odin 
and Frigga, his adoptive mother, is the only one who still cares. I love that little outburst you just had there, Tom, because that was exactly what you were holding back and not letting Odin see in your first scene. And Renee is so delicate, and uh, we always talked about this special bond that Loki and Frigga had, especially when Thor and Loki were children, that Thor was, was the chip off the old block. He was the quarterback. He was the son that Odin understood. And Loki was the student, um, an artist, someone who was more sensitive, more delicate. And Frigga understood that and nurtured that and, and taught him all of her magic. Um, and that bond, which, which is in Kenneth Branagh's Thor and is, is beautifully expanded by Alan Taylor, is, was, was something that was a privilege to play, that here is this character, Loki, who is now condemned, imprisoned uh, for eternity to be forgotten, written out of history and haunted by his demons. The only person who still cares in the entire universe is his mother. And that scene, and when we just saw her disappear, she wasn't really in the cell, she was projecting her image down there. And we uh, used the same visual effect that we used when Loki cast his illusions in Avengers and when he cast his illusions in Thor. So that's the first time that we begin to see that, uh, that that's where he learned that from, was mm. from Frigga. And at the center of all the action in the galaxy and blowing things up, there's a very simple story about a boy bringing his girl back home and meeting mom and meeting dad and not getting along with his brother. It's that small human stuff that keeps these movies relatable, I think. I think it's another th another thing I'm very proud of about the Thor films is that um, the scale of it is enormous. It's about gods and monsters, but ultimately it's about family. I just want to say that moment with uh, me throwing up the glass, that these, these scenes were shot, from my perspective, with um, the second unit director, John Mahaffey. And uh, it was a wonderful moment. We both talked about Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. And when uh, Steve McQueen is, Great. is locked up in the cooler, He's got his baseball glove and his baseball mitt, and um, it's his way of passing the time. So that's my little nod to Steve McQueen. I didn't know that. I just learned something on this audio commentary. There you I go. love that. We just made it up on the day. It's great. I thought, what could Loki be doing? He could be reading a book, he could be doing something. I thought maybe he's just lying in bed, uh. ruminating on his future. You'll be happy to know that uh, uh, Lou D'Esposito, our executive producer and co-president of the studio, uh, whose creative fingerprints are all over this uh, film, uh, in the, uh, on the mix stage, had a lot of notes making sure that the sound of that cup flipping up in the air and landing back in your hand was just right. Fantastic. I actually, there, <laughs> there was, there is, an, and somewhere in the outtakes, there's, a, I was, it, because of when you're lying on a bed and tossing a cup up, it sort of alters your perception of, um, of uh, the horizontal axis, and um, most most times I was able to flick up, flip up the cup and catch it in front of my face, and then on one particular occasion I just missed, and um, a steel mug slammed me right in the oh, forehead. Oh no! While we while we were filming. While we were filming. That's not on the gag reel. I love this moment. Adewale was absolutely amazing. There was a moment where. Here are these two titanic villains in the Thor universe sizing each other up. And um, it felt very real. He, he was in, this is a real costume. This isn't the visual effect he's wearing. It was uh, all prosthetic and he wore it very patiently. And um, it was like um, staring into the eyes of a, 
of an of an ancient animal or something. The discipline required to uh, to to frankly put up with that level of makeup and that level of costume uh, is a testament to his acting skill and what he was able to do with it mm. um, is is amazing. Mm. I mean, he really both as Algram and as Curse, Walt Simonson creations from the comics. Uh, he did it. He did such a great job. That's the coolest shot in the movie. It, is that it? It's all downhill from there? <laughs> That's one I love. It's a great one. I take my hat off. I love that shot. That's my favorite shot. <laughs> That's a John Mahaffey idea. Um, Loki's just sitting there reading, very publicly ignoring the chaos that's outside his cell. I think he notices it, but won't give them the satisfaction of looking. That's right. What do you think of that? <laughs> Hats off here to the stunt team. Um, uh, Steve Dent, Ben Cook, and they're an amazing, amazing group of people who, who every single time there was a fight, the discipline and, and, and uh, rigor required um, to, to commit physically to those uh, fight sequences is, is, is amazing, and we depend upon them. One of my favorite glances in the film there, it says so much without saying a word at all, Sif seeing the woman that Thor loves. And that's one of my favorite moves Renee does in the movie too, snagging that sword. This was one of the earliest sequences we ever designed um, because there's so much visual effects work in it. And it was fun for me because Heimdall was, didn't get a chance to be very active in the first movie and so it was good to see him have a sort of action beat here where he gets to show off. There is the crack. That is the one, the one moment in the movie that we see the crack of uh, where Bifrost was repaired from Thor smashing it in the first film. This is amazing. The stunt team again, Steve Dent, our second unit team, and of course Idris, doing much of this himself. Taking down a ship single-handedly. Who designs those spaceships, Kevin? Uh, it was Charles Wood's team. Yeah, we call the, the big one the Ark, and the small one's the Harrows. And this is one of my favorite sequences in the film. We get to see so much of Asgard, and so much of the deadly precision of the Dark Elves. And the ships that uh, we designed, you know, we tried various versions and finally wound up with these things, which are sort of like blades that swing Wonderful, being fun to do choreography with. This is where I, I just, I watch in awe because all of this work is done long after I finish filming. Seeing Asgardian skiffs this time around, seeing flying vehicles in Asgard, we didn't see any of those in the first film. But again, clearly they have that technology. Merging the ancient and the modern and the awesome. <laughs> In the first time seeing more of Heimdall's tools to protect the kingdom with the Asgardian shields going over the palace. 
the same technology and shielding, of course, that is keeping the prisoners in the dungeons. Again, some of the sort of Celtic imagery in the, um, the force field itself to keep it grounded in the mythology. There's Adewale again. It's true, on set he moved like an animal inside that costume. There's an amazing physical commitment. We depend so much upon the visual effects in these films. And um, we would be lost without them, so just want to publicly applaud them. It is, uh, it is a tremendous amount of work that continues for almost two years straight. Uh, and you've mentioned Jake, we'll mention Di, Victoria Alonso, our executive producer, uh, without whom none of this would, uh, would have come together. Again, I liked getting into sort of the dirtier parts of Asgard and when we went into the cleaner parts like the palace, getting to dirty them up. And nothing dirties up a room like flying an elven hero ship into it. This was a real set, the throne room with its collapsed columns, with the harrow embedded inside it. It was an amazing set to walk onto that. This one here. Where we've been lucky enough to shoot a number of scenes from our films. And uh, the first time was Captain America, the first Avenger. We shot a big Hydra facility on that stage. And I wondered what, what else had shot on this stage. Uh, and it's where the medal ceremony from Star Wars was shot and the monolith on the moon in 2001. That's the history of filmmaking you get in, uh, in London. These gravity grenades, again, were uh, in development for, for at least a year to try to get the, uh, the look just right. This was the test shot for that sequence. We see a little bit more Asgardian tech over the course of this movie, including the way the swords and shields have an energy surge to them as they're swung. The fantastic entrance from Chris Eccleston. Towering presence. Three o'clock in the morning, Chris had to get up to, uh, to sit in his makeup chair to walk on set for 10 o'clock. Something is rotten in the state of Asgard. Loki's starting to suspect that maybe things are not... that he may have uh, uh, set things in motion he didn't mean to set in motion. Which leads us to... Frida. That word. Again, another one of Charlie's beautiful sets that we kept yeah. repurposing. Um, one of my favorite sets here is just... That's my favorite shot of Renee in the whole movie. She looks so badass there. She certainly does. I can't remember who said it, but there's a very famous line, behind every great man is an even greater woman. We talked about this scene early on when we were putting the script together because we wanted to give Renee the opportunity to show that swagger and to, and to kick some ass, which she's incredibly good at. She ultimately pays a price for it, but it's, uh, it was fun to 
It was fun while it lasted. You have taken something, child. Give it back. And here we realize that Frigga's also smart because the whole thing's been a trick to distract him. Witch! Where is the eagle? I love that you get the sense that uh, you see directly the link between Frigga and Loki there. They're both in possession of the powers of magic. But the reason Curse knew how to find her was because Loki told him the way. And that knowledge, which Loki will find out later, is uh, a source of immense grief. That might be my favorite shot of Mr. Hemsworth in this movie. Nobody catches and throws a hammer like, uh, like he does. And the pain and the rage. I'll also shout out again to our editor, Dan Liebenthal, and to Wyatt Smith, uh, and to our composer, Brian Tyler, for, for constructing this sequence in such a beautiful way. So that you understand the minute she's stabbed that it's not an action scene to come it is uh it is a scene of tragedy so it was decided very early on that we were going to kill thor's mother loki's mother as being the one thing that could make these two guys believably collaborate it's a huge thing to sacrifice frigga in this film and i think is a huge part of why Alan wanted to call it the dark world. That suddenly every single character in the film has something to fight for. I think this funeral sequence is something that Alan really uh, brought to the picture and really, really wanted to have uh, as part of the narrative. It's really nice to have a, a thoughtful sort of breathing point in the picture. I liked it so much that I, in fact, I wanted to be this guy. <laughs> I even gotten, remember, I got yeah, uniform. I was going to be the guy, I do archery, so I was going to be the guy shooting the flaming arrow. And the first problem was that uh, our line producer in London sensibly said he couldn't ensure me if I was going to be waving burning weapons around. Um, so he shut it down, I got mad at him. And then, as it turned out, we ran out of time that day anyway to shoot it, but I spent half the day dressed as <laughs> an iron yard waiting for my big moment that never came. This is a beautiful sequence. Just stunning. And in the script, I knew that this section of uh, Frigga's funeral was going to be um, a grand sequence where you saw reflections of grief across the faces of all the major characters. This is classic, you know, imagery from a lot of different rituals around the globe do the same kind of thing, but it seemed nice to finish it with these rising spheres that sort of echo her ascending to the heavens. This is one of my favorite shots in the movie. Kramer uh, did a beautiful job, I think, the way we don't throw focus to the messenger who's come to tell Loki. The fact that Tom plays it like this with almost no visual effect at all, and the fact that we sort of indicate his emotional turmoil in a Loki way. I think this frame there uh, the frame of him the frame. in the cell, this frame within the frames, I think a 
great use of the anamorphic aspect ratio that we uh yeah from the very beginning i think uh you kramer was saying you wanted to shoot anamorphic and you and you wanted to shoot traditional anamorphic and using sort of optical anamorphic like not um using actual the lenses and stuff like that that establishing shot of london was done by our guardians of the galaxy second unit crew when they were going up to uh, do some helicopter footage and we thought we needed a few more a few more wide shots of london particularly for this transition going from the tragedy of Frigga's funeral to obviously Stellan telling us some scientific facts, but in a humorous fashion. We needed we needed a little more breathing room. It's one of the advantages of having multiple films shooting in uh, in the same city. Hmm. And of course, coming up, the traditional and important cameo. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> While well, we shot majority of the movie in London, that scene was shot in Los Angeles, um, which makes it much easier for Stan to come in and do his cameo. He will go anywhere, but it's just much easier if it's in L.A. This is a really good example of um, Natalie's experience with visual effects is, is um, of course, all of the stuff that she's looking at in this scene uh, doesn't exist to look at. So it has to exist in her mind alone. Jane Foster, you need to come with us. We are still unable to restore the palace shields our artillery cannot detect Zach Levy as Fandral giving us the bad news. Isn't it right, Kevin, that um, Zach Levi was initially considered for Fandral in the first film a long time ago? But uh, I think he was previously contracted to... to um, yes, his TV series his Chuck. TV series Chuck. That's 100% right. And uh, it was a long time he was going to be he was going to be Fandral, and, and we kept thinking that we would uh, be able to work out the schedule, and unfortunately uh, uh, we weren't. But fortunately, we found Josh Dallas, who did a great job. He was fantastic. The irony, of course, was he did such a great job that he got another job after that <laughs> for, a television, for a television show and made him unavailable for this one. And thankfully, Zach, by that point, was available and uh, thankfully still very much interested. Both of them great singers, incidentally, Josh and Zach. You think there's a Fandral duet at some point there in our future? Be somewhere in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you get up very early in the morning uh, to uh, sit in the hair and makeup chair on these films, um, it's always nice to, you know, start the day well and with it in, in good spirits. And um, our makeup girls had a great playlist, and uh, was we're all, Zach and I were often known to um, pain their eardrums with with uh, howling renditions of George Michael and Elton John duets. Don't let the sun go down on me. We'll always have that, Zach. Uh, worth pointing out that this scene we looked at as a, as a counterpoint to the scene in the first film in the observatory where Odin banishes Thor as, as Thor is uh, screaming at him, you're an old man and a fool. And we wanted them to have conflict again in this movie, but not have Thor act in that same arrogant and brash manner. I love the scene. It, it, um, it represents um, 
Thor's supersession of his father, but in fact, the son is now becoming wiser than the father. Here, we're back in Darcy's apartment, another great set built by Charlie Wood, um, practical even to the point of being able to rain uh, all over it if we wanted to. Um, and we see some of the footage from Stonehenge that, in its intended use as, a, as TV footage. Um, I've, but I've had a chance to watch this film a couple of times with audiences, and it's funny. It's, you can just keep cutting to Dallin Skarsgård with no pants on, and it, uh, it's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> I do like the, um, the freeze frame that we end up with here as he pauses it. <laughs> I still am in this there's such a wonderful um embracing of the silliness of his of his character. He's so um he's so game for a laugh. Again, back on one of my favorite sets, the uh the pub exterior set so we can see outside. Two of the handsomest men in motion pictures sitting down to have a conversation. Again, meant a lot to me that we got to take off Heimdall's helmet and finally see Idris Elba as a man god. This is a great example of 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 the 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 other side of Asgard, the, the 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 section where people live, which we didn't get to see necessarily in the first film. And this is to me classic Kramer Morgenthau lighting, just beautiful the way it slashes across them and sort of, you know, their faces glow but feel lit almost inadvertently but beautifully. This was a gigantic set called the Medina, built out at Long Cross Studios in. Uh, in London, and uh, this sequence we call the pub scene was shot here. The scene earlier where Frigga met Jane for the first time was shot here. The scene with Sif and the earlier pub scene was shot there. We got a lot of uh, different looks out of that one uh, uh, that one set. And here we set up a, a kind of phase of the movie, which is very consciously a kind of heist um, storytelling. The classic device of sort of the voiceover telling us what's going to happen as we watch it, and the cross-cutting between the planning stage and the um, playing out of the heist, I've seen it in a million movies, um, but it's really fun to sort of quote that genre. So our Warriors 3 plus Sif, and now with Heimdall actually going against his sworn duty to, to be of assistance, working together to break out of Asgard so that they can try and bring Malekith to justice. The first time you see the two brothers back in the same frame, and Loki's still playing the trickster. Enough. No more illusions. And Thor demands that Loki play his true hand. Now you see me, brother. I think perhaps for the first time since Loki discovered his true lineage, you see him authentically show his emotions. It was really important to me with Loki that having been the antagonist as, as a character who's always, who's always um, in control of his emotions, who's charming and playful and uh, uh, a master manipulator, a chess master with, with, um, with people, that, uh, that we break him down spiritually. And Frigga's death is something that absolutely shatters him. And this is the first time you ever see Thor withdraw his affection. And when Thor says this, he means it. I think that uh, when Loki says, 
what makes you think you can trust me? And Chris Thor says, I don't. Mother did. And it, you actually see it getting to Loki. It's part of the really crucial work of making us believe that maybe we can trust this guy this time. He does have feelings. You can hurt this guy. I love it. So many thoughts going through Loki's mind, but that's all he says. Mm. And this, of course, the shape-shifting sequence with a few surprises. Perhaps the most fun I've ever had. Is this better? Introducing my alter ego as an Ainayar guard. You'll see him again. When we, when, we, when we shot this, we actually played the whole thing out. So Chris played Sif for a while. And in this particular, in particular transformation, I had the privilege of donning Captain America's costume. I'm pleased to say it fits like a glove. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere on this DVD, you'll be able to see me do it. Um, and um, Chris Evans is, I, I take my hat off to him, he's so game. I, I put his costume on and I did, an, I did a crude impression of Captain America and then later, um, uh, he watched me do it, and and so that performance that you see is Chris Evans doing an impression of me, doing an impression of him. That was shot on a day that we were also shooting Captain America the Winter Soldier. So Chris had been fighting all day in a different outfit and thankfully agreed to come down where we were filming this, put on the old outfit, and yes, watch your performance. And uh, he watched it once and said he got it, and he started running through it, and he started having a good time. And he said, I've spent, I've spent two years, over two years now, three years, um, you know, not letting Steve Rogers be like this, not letting Steve Rogers have that, uh, that over-the-top attitude. Uh, but he did it very well in about three takes. This is one of my favorite moments in the film. Loki and Jane Foster meet for the first time. I'm Loki. You may have heard That was for New York. And she hit me. Four takes you missed on the fifth take. You called me here on an urgent matter. What is it? I always liked um, the idea because at the end of Thor, uh, Kenneth Branagh's film, you hear Loki say to Thor, what happened to you on Earth that turned you so soft? Don't tell me it was that woman. And... Um, Thor smarts and Loki responds, oh, it was. Well, maybe when we're finished here, I'll pay her a visit myself. And that's what sets them off. Yep. Even in the background, you can see them eyeing each other up. The beginning of a running joke here where everybody is threatening Loki. Loki and Sif haven't seen each other since uh, Loki was sat on the throne, I think, in Kenneth Branagh's Thor. This was an intention to do this structure early in the script, um, and then we sort of moved away from it, and then we came back to it. So we wound up shooting that scene where they're all discussing the plan quite late um, on a little smidgen of set we had left over um, because we liked the idea and realized it sort of gave more energy to this whole sequence. It's worth saying that actually in that shot, when you see, in the wide shot, when you see the three of us, Thor, Loki, and Jane Foster walking towards Volstagg. Um, uh, Natalie actually hadn't arrived on set, and um, that was a body double um, just about four, uh, four days before she arrived, and then we did it again with her 
um, um, when she arrived because she'd just been finishing shooting a film with Terence Malick. I thought you said he knew how to fly this thing. I said, how hard could it be? This scene in the spaceship um, was shot about three days before Christmas and um, was incredibly entertaining because, of course, well, whatever you're doing, brother, I suggest you do it faster. The spaceship doesn't move and it stands still. And, um, and so that, this is where sort of um, you can talk about kind of blue screen acting is we had to imagine all of this. I am pressing it gently. Stop working! And also, Chris and I talked about that the, the, the um, eternal relationship between all siblings is if you get if you're in the back of the car with your brothers, um, uh, you, you're always going to have a competition about who gets to drive. <laughs> well, and that's what's so great. It's obviously a huge effect sequence, but it really is about you two bickering. Mm. It was something we'd always talked about that, that Thor and Loki have this history that they've always always competed and always had a kind of playful rivalry that of course gets darker and more antagonistic when the stakes go up. But in this scene, Loki is the worst passenger imaginable. <laughs> yeah, but only with your hammer. I always loved that line. As we were cutting the sequence together, the exterior shots here are so dynamic, amazing. Then we go inside, and initially, as wonderful as you two are, it felt very static. Mm. And it was Jake Morrison working with Double Negative, our visual effects vendor, that had this idea to add this overlay of this, of this holographic display, which, for us, ties it all together. There's Boar's helmet again. It's a very good idea because actually when you're shooting, you know, of course, um, Chris and I know that we have to act, physically act, that the spaceship is in motion and that we're being shot at and that we're ducking and diving and rolling. But there's a very, it's, it's um, you know, you, you're, you're so keen not to overplay. You don't want to look like you're in some terrible simulator. You, you're trying to, um, to, to measure that kind of thing evenly. And I, <laughs> in that moment, there was a, um, a mat outside the set, and I did a, a, a nice um, high jump outside the gap there. And this was important to us just in terms of storytelling, that we wanted Thor not just to be the hammer-wielding guy, but to show that he is becoming a, a real leader. He is a thinker. He actually had this all thought out ahead of time. Had even lied to his brother about it, because he knew he can't quite trust his brother, but had this idea of using sending the troops off on a wild goose chase as a way of getting out of Asgard. Take us to your secret pathway. always it's a delight to see how much Tom Loki enjoys what he's doing. Small side story, uh, my nine-year-old daughter was cast as Loki in her school play and Tom volunteered to give her advice on how to play Loki and he shot a little video on his iPhone and sent it to her. Um, said a lot of things about the character but the most important thing he said was that to always remember that Loki is never not having fun. Um, so in moments like this when their lives are at stake you can just see he just gets such a kick out of it. He loves chaos. Fandral, Zach Levy, showing that he's a, he deserves the title of the warrior, one of the warrior three, warriors three. Loki 
what we're doing is going through what we called the backdoor Bifrost, which was that Loki alone knows about these sort of magical places that have some of the same materials that are built into the Rainbow Bridge, with the idea that he knows how to sort of do a kind of on-the-cheap Bifrost travel. And so you see the, in the rock seams of the material that we use in the Rainbow Bridge, with the idea that he can wormhole in surprising ways that not everybody else knows about. And it's on the fly as they land, but that little ta-da that Tom Hiddleston gives us um, plays very well in a crowded theater. Josh. Worth talking about this language um, that they speak in another, in an, in an elven language. Um, I believe it's, it's uh, Alan wanted it to sound ancient and foreign. Yes, and Alan knew. The linguist from Game of Thrones who came on board to uh, to create the Dark Elf language for us. This scene is one of my favorites. was certainly one of my favorites to play and one was one of the last scenes I shot. Um, it feels like a conversation that Thor and Loki have always wanted to have. This day, the next hundred years is nothing. It's a heartbeat. You'll never be ready. The conversation about power, conversation about the difference of their perspectives. Satisfaction's not in my nature. What does Loki want? Does Loki want to win the game, or is it the game itself that he enjoys playing? You had her tricks, but I had her trust. Trust. And now they get into it. Is that her last expression? Trust? Will you let her die? What help were you and yourself? Who put me there? Who put Production-wise. It's worth pointing out that there were colossal fans blowing on you two in this sequence. So not only are you giving an amazing performance, but you're doing it with these giant fans. Mm. But what that meant, of course, was we couldn't use any of the sound. Right. So I you remember. Had, you had to come in and speak, I think maybe in this very room. In this room. And do the entire scene again. Yeah, we dubbed it. And I don't think anybody would have known that if I didn't point it out. No. Because you and Chris did such a spectacular job at making it feel incredibly natural. This next exchange is one I love. Trust my rage. It feels like the whole relationship between Thor and Loki is about trust. As that Loki feels betrayed, he feels like he can't trust his family, he can't trust Odin or Thor, because the narrative of his life was a lie. And Thor feels so betrayed by Loki because he's rejected every olive branch that's been proffered to him. And up on that skiff, they have a, an argument, a heated, passionate argument about the nature of trust, who has betrayed whom, and, um, and whose fault was it that they lost their mother. Um, I think we shot this in the holding area for the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is what this is with these wonderful tiles. We thought it worked as a kind of, we weren't really saying whether we were in a police station. I guess we're in a police station, but it's also sort of a holding pen for crazy people. Uh, but the institutional look of the ceramic brick and everything was great. And the exterior was the same building, that beautiful Victorian red brick. And again, going to Earth, setting up those gravity spikes, setting up the convergence as it is coming closer, having a balance of the, the drama that we just saw in the skiff and now the humor with Selvig. But also every time you see Selvig, 
we recommended that he had a god in his brain. <laughs> so as we know, we're torn in our love for Loki because he's so engaging and because we care about him so much. And yet, cutting back to Stellan, realizing, look what that guy did to him in the events of the Avengers. Mm. And now one of my favorite images in the movie, uh, using the birds to show that the portals are starting to open up and things are starting to get weird in London. Something that ties into the early part of the film with the kids and the cement truck. That's a nod to Hitchcock in that shot. It is. Those birds are actually descendants from the birds that were trained for uh, for the Hitchcock film, and uh, and it took a few a few dozen takes to get them to do that, but it was not bad. So Sully isn't going to get sane, but he's sort of learning to embrace his craziness, and um, he's going to stop taking his medication. Now this next sequence is interesting because um, it was actually shot across four separate weeks. Uh, the wide shots were shot in Iceland, and the close-ups were picked up two weeks later at Longcross Studios, just outside the M25 in London. Um, so it was a very complicated jigsaw puzzle to put together, but one I think which is um, which works brilliantly. This shot, for example, is uh, on a volcano in Iceland. One of the most thrilling moments of playing Loki for me and for Chris Hemsworth playing Thor. We're two characters who've come out of the popular consciousness in Norse mythology on the uh, landmass of Iceland, which is where these characters were invented. That shot is Chris and myself standing on, on that mountain in Iceland. Worth noting also that the sky in these shots is something that is, um, is uh, painted in in post-production. You still don't trust me, brother. Would you? Again, the theme of trust is, is recurring. Can these two brothers ever trust each other? No, I wouldn't. Just like in Avengers. In this moment, providing the first I knew it moment in which Loki betrays Thor, seemingly. Loki was brought along on the journey because he's a strategist. And this is his greatest trick of all. All I ever wanted was you and Odin dead at my feet. The biggest surprise to come. Loki may not be worthy to lift the hammer, but he has other ways and other means. We teased that moment at Comic-Con this year, and it was fun to see people try to figure out exactly what was going to happen with Thor's hand mm. and with Loki's intentions. Malekith now having the half-black, half-white face, which is his, uh, his signature look in the uh, original comic series. Technically, this was a... Um a very challenging thing to film because, of course, as you'll see, uh, Natalie Portman as Jane Foster is lifted and elevated into the air, um, which is on a separate shot as a separate plate. So she's suspended on wires, which are attached to a harness that Natalie was wearing underneath her costume. And Chris Hemsworth, Chris Eccleston, and myself are looking up at the sky 
imagining these things happening to her. Now, because of the link through the ether, Jane is seeing Malachus' intentions, which allows her to have insight into what he has in mind, so that uh, later on they use that to battle, to sort of try and prevent him from not destroying the universe. Uh, that's not really the way he would describe it. He's basically restoring the universe. And as far as the elves are concerned, it's all been downhill since the Big Bang, so he's just going to put things back the way they were meant to be once he gets his hands on the ether, which he's about to do. It is one of a few, uh, actually a number of shots in this movie that have elements from at least three different continents. <laughs> Iceland, London, California. It's a jigsaw puzzle. I love this image coming up of Loki protecting Jane and realizing he's not all bad. Redemption. Again, these closer shots were photographed at Long Cross Studios in London. And the, the high, wide shots were photographed in Iceland. Malekith finally gets what he wants, and I sort of like just turns and goes. He has no more time to mess with you two. So Thor and Loki's plan hasn't worked, and now these two princes of Asgard who've committed treason by going against the wishes of Odin are going it alone. Again, suspended on wires, saved by my brother. I love that shot. Two brothers back to back. That's something that we, you and I talked about a long time ago, I remember. Um, after Thor and after Avengers, where you'd see Thor and Loki fight each other, they're fighting in antagonism for two films, and talking about the thrill of seeing them back to back, teamed up and fighting the bad guys. There's a cover of a Walt Simonson comic with Odin and Thor and Loki all together fighting for the same cause. And we've always said, boy, we'd love to see that moment. We'd love to get a little bit of that in this sequence here. Wyatt Smith, the editor who cut this sequence together, brought a lot of ideas to this sequence as we were, as we were piecing it together. Wyatt is a huge lifelong Marvel fan and uh, would engage you in conversations as to who is stronger and exactly what power levels each character had. Uh, and he ended up making this sequence much uh, more brutal and having, and having Curse come very, very close to pummeling Thor and even doing things like this. Nobody can lift the hammer if they're not worthy, but that doesn't mean they can't knock it aside off its uh, course. Thor saved Loki's life. Loki saves Thor's life in return but at a cost. 
Well, something I noticed about Adewale the first time I worked with him, that he created a whole physical language for his character on Oz. If you just look at the way the guy moves, stands, dresses. I, when I first met him, I didn't realize he was as different as he is from that character because he embodied it so much. And the same thing here, he found a way to bring that character to physical life. You know, frequently the character, once he becomes cursed, doesn't have much to say. Um, so it's almost all body language. And anyway, um, this, of course, is a, one of the major moments in the movie. This next sequence was uh, one of the most fulfilling days I had on the film. It felt, it, because it was the good old-fashioned death scene. I always like that Loki's apologizing for things he's done and perhaps things he's going to do. I'll tell Father what you did here today. I didn't do it for him. Again, an amazing line. And um, the complexity of it, the ambiguity of it is something I always appreciated. He didn't do it for Odin, but who did he do it for? For his mother, his brother, for himself. That shot was uh, photographed at, this, at sunset in Iceland, and uh, we had about 20 minutes to get it. The end of Loki, so far. I remember you had an idea to, to go back. We'd finished that death scene, and you wanted to shoot one more close-up. I did. And, uh, and uh, there's never enough time in a day, and there's never enough days in the schedule. Uh, but you clearly were onto something there, and we, uh, and we uh, mounted a little insert unit. I think that's what's in, right? I mean, one, that's what's in the movie. One of my favorite moments, because it's sort of the, one of the darkest hours in the movie, um, not just because we've lost a character that we've come to really invest in, but also because Jane is basically laying it out for us. There's, you know, the universe is going to be destroyed and there's nothing we can do about it. They're at an all-time low. Helpless. Cast away on a distant planet. And then... And Chris is so good with humor. Um, people sort of think of him as a serious leading man, but he's so good at the humor. Great. Partly because you know, realize, okay, the movie's going to come back to life now. We're going to be a, you know, we're going to live to fight again. And it's Chris O'Dowd who's bringing us that message, which is really great because you get his charisma to sort of carry it along. <laughs> this was shot very late. Uh, I just love the fact that we get a chance to see Thor being the jealous boyfriend in the background. <laughs> And hopefully people pick up on what exactly is going on. These are the objects we saw thrown through the portals at the beginning that disappeared. No, 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 my, one of my favorite lines was the little girl saying, sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. And now we realize what happens to them when they don't come back. They, they stayed stranded in Svartalheim. I want to point out we've just seen the cell phone gag where Thor and Jane are lost seeming uh, all hope is gone and out of nowhere her cell phone rings and that was an idea that Don Payne 
who was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful writer, was, uh, was basically our, our primary writer on the first Thor, was our first writer on this one. He very uh, tragically passed away recently, and this film is in fact dedicated to him. But that joke of Jane Foster's cell phone ringing on another planet was in his very first draft of this uh, film. And uh, every time audiences laugh at it and talk about it afterwards, I, uh, I uh, bow my head in remembrance of the, uh, of the wonderful writer, Don Payne. Loki is dead. Oh, thank God. I, I'm so sorry. Thank you. He was a great man, Don. He had the most wonderful sense of humor. And um, he loved these characters, and uh, he was so instrumental in, in um, instilling all of us with such a passion for them on that first film. You know, the, the tone of these movies that, that, people, uh, that people recognize as so unique is due in large part because of Don, because of his love for the characters, his love for Marvel, and also his sense of humor. He was one of the primary writers on The Simpsons mm. for many, many, many years. All the weapon, but... You know, we, we, we make these films uh, hoping that they will be worth watching and re-watching. And this is one of the scenes that when you watch it a second time, a third time, and Odin says, Loki, the question is, is he asking about him? Is he guessing that's who he's found? Or does he recognize that that's who's standing in front of him? For each additional world, the power will increase exponentially. The effect would be... Here's another amazing example of the talent of Stellan. Not just the humor, but here he is with, frankly, a mouthful of exposition, and uh, and he sells it. And it's important because it's the it's setting up the stakes, uh, and the uh, and the ground rules of what we're about to witness. And he does it with no pants on. The Mayans, the Chinese, the Egyptians—they made use of the gravitational effects of the convergence, and they left us a map. Stonehenge. This is one of the reasons we wanted this film to take place in London. Number one, we wanted to actually shoot in the city that the story took place in, and we wanted to be able to tie the ancient convergence and what Malekith was doing thousands of years ago with the history of London and Stonehenge and the, uh, and the Celtic uh, connection to the Norse myths. Facial extrusions. The very fabric of reality is going to be torn apart. I better get in my pants. Focus, this is important. We have to hammer them in all around the site, and then Jane and Eric will activate them from the tower. To tight together. Do you even know what these things do? No. Neither do I. This is all shot on location in Greenwich. We were just inside the painted hall, which has history going back hundreds and hundreds of years. It certainly does. was a shot that was added much later at the suggestion of uh, the talented uh, uh, animators at uh, Double Negative. It's an extraordinary shot, actually. And the reason this location was because we knew our final battle was going to be so chaotic that I liked the idea of having a great formalism in the space that we were staging it in to sort of play against each other. It's also, for me, fun that all the lines intersect, that 
on the map that bring us to this place. And if you were to draw the last line, it would be the prime meridian, which cuts right through the center of the Greenwich because the Greenwich Observatory is, you know, longitude zero on the map. And this elevator idea was late in the game, trying to figure out how the heck do you get down to the bottom of the ship? I really love what they did. It's quite sinister looking um, and very tech, techy looking. Malekith now transforming even further due to the power of the ether. In Jane, it just made her a little lightheaded. It was under the surface, but Malekith knows how to use it and how to harness all its power. Needed have come so far, Asgardian. Death would have come to you soon enough. Not by your hand. Your universe was never meant to be. Your world. Whenever we film on exterior locations with our characters in full makeup and full costume, we know that the public is going to be there and that the public is going to take some photos. And there were some, frankly, spectacular photos that came out of those days of, of photography. Uh, and that, that ultimately was the, was the original reveal of Thor's new costume, of the Dark Elf's look, of uh, Malekith's look. Uh, but thankfully, they were pretty good pictures. Hmm. You know, with all that power, I thought you'd head harder. Worth talking here, I think, about um, about Chris. There is so much um, physical work he does as this character, and uh, I remember on Avengers there was a lot of talk about. Um, uh, everyone playing superheroes but um chris hemsworth is is one of the only people who does 99 percent of his superhero work he is such a gifted athlete he has he has such physical commitment such stamina to do days like this where you're outside and the costume's heavy and you know a sequence like this maybe takes a week or 10 days and um and he you know he gets beaten up on this film and um when he hits the deck, that's Chris hitting the deck. And um, every day, gets up, dusts himself off, and goes back into the ring. What the hell just happened? I remember Chris saying he went through uh, 30 costumes because they all got so ripped and torn and smashed to pieces. Well, they didn't, and... and what we just saw of Chris landing on the on the Mercedes and smashing it, that was his idea two or three days beforehand, and we rigged it to, to do that. But that's an example of this guy who, who's already beat beat up based mm. on all the stunts he's doing and then has ideas for even further ways for him to, uh, to have to uh, perform these amazing feats. The portals were set up with the idea that here they start to pay off, that you know a punch can throw you off, out of London and onto the slopes of Svartalheim, you can drop out of some one place and fly somewhere else so that it's really just two guys fighting, but uh, it's got scale of uh, the nine realms behind it as we start to get crazier and crazier with our jumping around. And now we have Thor and 
Malekith and his hammer going back and forth between worlds. Mjolnir, of course, going back to, uh, going back to Thor. Trying to take the direct route through, uh, through space. We were finishing Avengers as we were prepping this movie. And, uh, Alan saw a, uh, not final cut, but a near final cut of Avengers. Uh, and of course, the final battle on that film is very, very large with the aliens coming out of the portal in New York. And he was very smart to say, let's not compete with that. Let's not have this be about armies of Dark Elves versus armies of Asgardians. Um, let's find something else that we can make it just as spectacular, but, uh, but uh, uh, very different and much more, uh, much more uh, uh, clever and unique to this franchise. So, so that was one of the reasons the convergence came up in the storyline, which allowed us to do things like this, which we've never seen before in, in our action scenes, going between these worlds. What are you doing? Jotunheim. A surprise return to Jotunheim. And a miniature version, a baby version of the frost creature that we saw in the first film. Who not only becomes part of the mix here, but if you stick around through all the credits, there's a final shot where he gets uh, one of my favorite beats in the movie is involves this guy. And a callback to the floating truck at the beginning of the film allowing Ian to have his heroic moment. With a mini, a good British product. On each of our movies, we like to do rap gifts at the end of the movie. Sometimes we give them out during post, and we commission an artist to do an original poster. And it's not ever something that's actually used in marketing. It's just used for, uh, for these gifts. And an artist named Ali Moss did it on the first Thor film, and again for us on Thor The Dark World. And what he did on this one was unique. He made a primary one for the majority of the, uh, of the uh, department heads that uh, featured Thor in the center of it. But what he did for each of the individual cast was customize it. So you remember you got one with Loki in the center, Natalie got one with Jane in the center, and, and Jonathan, who plays Ian, got one with himself holding a Mini Cooper over his head <laughs> in the center of it. That's Vanaheim, that's Jotunheim, that's Asgard, and for the very first time, although we never say it, is hell. Seeing more of the Nine Realms than we've ever seen before. That's hell with one L, Tom. Indeed. There it is again. Do you think we'll see more of it one day, Kevin? I think we could. I think these these little seeds are, are put into films to see if uh, if uh, the audience uh, uh, wants us to uh, to feed them and have them grow. And this, of course, is showing the ether not just endangering Earth, but endangering all of the nine realms, as is Malekith's plan. This shot to show Asgard in trouble, but also to show that the Bifrost is offline to explain why the Asgardians can't just beam zap Malekith up uh, uh, and out of harm's way the way, that, uh, the way that happened at the very opening. This shot, interesting because uh, it is uh, composed of elements from three continents. The background was Greenwich, Chris was in Hong Kong, and Natalie and Stellan were in Los Angeles. You'd never know. 
and we changed this ending from what we had initially envisioned. Um, uh, the face-off with Malekith is, is the same. Thor going into this ether dome, as we called it, is the same. Uh, putting himself into harm's way and, and, and willing to sacrifice himself is the same. But initially he was going to do it by pulling uh, lightning from all of the nine realms. These portals are open so he could, he could theoretically use Mjolnir to, to connect it to nine bolts of lightning. We saw him use one bolt uh, on Svartalheim uh, unsuccessfully, and he thought maybe nine would do the job. And while visually it was cool, it didn't, it didn't tie the story together. And it didn't give Natalie and, and Stellan and Darcy and Ian's characters um, uh, 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 as much of a purpose in the finale or, or even in the, in the whole movie. So the notion was changed to the use of these gravity spikes and these portals that Jane and, and, uh, and Eric have figured out how to connect. Um, and we were very pleased with, uh, with this change and the notion that, uh, and this allowing us this big heroic leap and spike into his chest, which ended up being much more sort of thematic, thematically in line with the rest of the movie and, and incorporating the science of all the characters. And that without that science and without Jane, Thor would not have been able to defeat Mel. I heard there was a nice story, and, and perhaps, Kevin, you can tell me if this is true, that um, at one point in the story, um, more damage to St. Paul's had, had been planned. But um, St. Paul's Cathedral requested that, that um, St. Paul's stay standing, because actually when uh, London was under attack in the Second World War, uh, St. Paul's was one of the only buildings that remained standing, and that um, they wanted to preserve that legacy. That is true. I think it was Thor and Malekith were going to smash through that dome along with some of those cars, and instead a car just simply grazes the top and bounces off. And they instead go into the street. We like the coming full circle now. Malekith, who had sacrificed his people in that suicide run at the opening as he, as he, as he forces them to turn off the power to all of their arcs and they crash down onto the Asgardians and now he's in that same in that same field where so many of his people had uh, had perished at his hand and he faces the same uh, the same fate with an arc smashing on him Tom, do you want to tell our American uh, listeners about Shreddies? <laughs> Shreddies um, is, a, is, a, is a favorite British cereal. Um, should, uh, should one choose um, cereal as, as a breakfast dish? Um, grew up on Shreddies as a child. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how they're made, but uh, they're very, very tasty indeed. This scene was shot in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and I leave it to the eagle-eyed viewers to tell me if that's actually a British box of shreddies or some sort of American version of it because I can't tell you once said there would never be a wiser king than me Odin referencing a line from the last scene between the two of them in the first film everyone of them saw you 
Interesting detail about this scene. Uh, Chris Hemsworth photography is um, shot in Hong Kong, I believe, and um, Anthony Hopkins shot in LA. And um, because of the nature of, um, of the scheduling, uh, I was able to read Thor's lines for Sir Anthony Hopkins in this scene. I'd rather be a good man than a great king. Is this my son I hear, or the woman he loves? When you speak to, I never hear mother's voice. Now let's presume that the people listening to this have watched the movie already, and this is their se at least second time watching it. I hope you haven't watched the whole movie for a first time, listening to, uh, to us talk over it. Uh, but this scene needed to work for first-time viewers and for second and third and fourth-time viewers. Uh, and people who've seen the movie already know, of course, this is not really Odin sitting on the throne. This is Loki. And every, and every demeanor and every move that he makes needed to work both for people that thought it was Odin, as first-time viewers would, and also people who knew that it was Loki. And this moment here, looking at the pause that, uh, that Tony does when Thor holds up the hammer, and he says, it's yours. Because Loki, of course, realizes, I I'm not going to be able to lift it. Just mm. keep, keep the damn thing. And also questioning why uh, Loki is being so nice to Thor here. Because what Odin is saying right now, and Loki, it is really Loki saying it, is quite kind and quite nice and is leaving Thor feeling uh, good about his standing with his father. So has he done that because of how much he cares for Thor? Or has he done that because he knows that's the best way to get Thor to leave for a long time? No. Thank you. Only one of you may ascend to the throne, but you were both born to be kings. So at the completion of three films, it is revealed that, in fact, it has been a Loki trilogy all along. <laughs> yeah. That the little boy who was promised that he was born to be a king at the beginning of the first film and learns the hard way that that was not true over the course of that first film and has to let go and fall into the abyss and have a miserably failed attempt to get his own throne in Avengers now has figured out a way to take it all without anybody knowing. What happens next, Tom? You tell me. Uh, I want everybody to notice all of these names because they have done the tremendous work that, is, uh, that has built this, uh, this film over the course of two and a half years. These credits were also done by the fine folks at Blur when we made a deal for them to do our opening Svartalheim prologue. They also asked if they could bid for the for the main on end titles, um, and they came up with this, which we absolutely love, and it's one of the most unique ones we've uh, we've ever done. With Brian Tyler's soaring score, and I love these sort of. We did a similar thing in, in Iron Man three, what we call the curtain call, um, main on end credits, where you get to see images and get to see the people that you've just enjoyed over the course of the movie. 
I think these credits are spectacular. And we end them again with Loki on the throne. And then a surprise. You know, the, the best of the, of the Marvel tags for us that can do two things. It can tie up some loose ends from the movie you've just watched, and it can set up something to come in the Marvel mythology. And this, of course, does both of those things by cleaning up the fate of the ether. Clearly, Volstagg and the Warriors Three went back to, to Svartalheim, got this, uh, uh, collected it, this dangerous relic. We always assume that Heimdall was the one who's told them that you can't keep both of them together. So to go and give it to the collector. And the collector, as portrayed by Benicio del Toro here, is a main character in Guardians of the Galaxy. And there's the ether. And it's exciting because it's the first time we've had a new, a new character, a new star appear in one of our tags, really since Sam Jackson showed up at the end of the first Iron Man film. So people who know who Nick Fury is could get excited, but people who had no idea who he was but knew who Sam Jackson was would be curious and would want to know. And in, in the same way, we hope some people will know this is the collector. Most people will simply know it's Benicio Del Toro and go, what the heck is this? And where the heck is he? Uh, and be curious enough to seek out those answers, which will lead them to the August 2014 release of Guardians of the Galaxy. One down, five to go, revealing the six Infinity Stones that will serve. Also revealing for the first time that the Tesseract, the film that, the, the uh, MacGuffin that bonded all of our phase one films together was in fact an Infinity Stone. So all sorts of moral mythology going on in our little tag. When I first saw the film and I saw the uh... Guardians of the Galaxy piece, I was, um, I speak as one who doesn't know the comic books, those particular characters that well. I do know Benicio Del Toro, and um, of course I'd seen the footage that you showed at Comic-Con, and I, that little piece made me so excited to see James Gunn's film. I can't wait. That was the, that was the intention. And we hope that it works. Uh, all of these names, we could spend hours talking about each and every one of them and the amazing contributions that they had. But the credits only run about five minutes, so we won't have time to do that. It does go to show, though, what a fascinating jigsaw puzzle these films are. Um, so many people... Um, working so hard in their, in their separate departments um, with their different skill sets to, to make a great film. And, and um, it's one of the great uh, joys for me of being in these films is working with people that have such high skill levels in their specific, specific um, 
departments. Um, you really are working with practitioners in, in the film business at the very highest level. Um, makeup, hair, production designers, carpenters, set decorators, stuntmen, um, the camera team, the sound team. It's, um, it's a, a team game. And uh, when you watch these films for the first time, uh, you, you feel such, uh, such pride that so many people have worked so hard uh, to make something. It's, um, it reminds me of when I was a child and I first fell in love with the movies. It's, uh, it's magic. One of the reasons I like putting little surprises or tags at the end of the credits of our films is I used to, uh, A, I want people to look at these credits and, and uh, 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 appreciate all of the hard work that all these names have done or, or, or more likely want to be interested enough to learn what they do and learn how they do it. Uh, because that's how I got very interested in, in making movies. When I was a kid, I used to sit through the credits all the time. Um, uh, and a few times, you may recall Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a, Ferris popped up at the end. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I think probably I spent three years after that watching all of the credits to learn and to appreciate what they've done, but also hoping that something there'd be a little surprise. Be something at the end. And there almost never was. Yeah. And I was an idiot by myself in the theater. I was the same guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember some of the best post-credit sequences now. When did it start, do you think? Was Ferris Bueller the first one you saw? Well, that's the first one I remember. I'm sure there were there's something that I, I'm not aware of that happened beforehand. There should be a website dedicated to post-credit scenes. Supervising digital colorist Stephen J. Scott. His name is is uh, buried deep within the the end credit crawl. Uh, but like many of the people within the uh, deep within the credit crawl, he is incredibly key to the look of this film and to most of the Marvel Studios films. He does what's called the DI, the digital intermediary, and and brings uh, uh, the work of the cinematographer to life, and uh, and uh, uh, has an artist's eye. Uh, he's a very very have you met him, Tom? I never have. You're no. going to come visit next time. Uh, he's an amazing guy. Special thanks to Stephen Broussard, Brad Winterbaum, Jeremy Latcham, Nate Moore. Those are the other executive producers at Marvel Studios who make up part of the Brain Trust, who were very, very helpful in uh, the development of this film, and in particular during post-production on this film. And we're back. We wanted to answer the question of where Thor went, but after the Loki reveal, it wasn't appropriate to go right to this. We wanted that reveal and that twist to, to sink in with the audience over the course of the Man on End titles. But we wanted people to know that they were getting back together and having a passionate kiss, which now that people have seen the movie more than once, will reveal that this was shot in Hong Kong with Chris's 
wife, Elsa, in a Jane wig. And one last little joke, one last little gag, showing that we haven't forgotten about the frost creature and that he's still running around there somewhere. The final shot is something I find very charming that brings back that uh, beloved creature from Jotunheim. Um, but thank you for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Hope you enjoy it. And you... That's the commentary. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Thank Thor. you very much, Kevin. Thor will return. Will Loki? Who knows? That's the question. <laughs>